0: Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 19. This week, we're speaking with Dr. Alessio Fasano. He is the W. Allen Walker Chair of Pediatric Astroenterology and Nutrition and Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, as well as a Professor of Nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. He is the Chief of the Division of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, as well as the Associate Chief of Research in the Department of Pediatrics at the Mass General Hospital for Children. He is known worldwide for his groundbreaking research in establishing the rate of celiac disease at 1 in 133 Americans, as well as his groundbreaking research in intestinal permeability and specifically the chemical zonulin that's involved in intestinal leakage. Dr. Fasano also directs the Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center and is the Associate Chief for Basic Clinical and Translational Research at the Mass General Hospital. Under his leadership, investigators are studying the molecular mechanisms of autoimmune disorders, including celiac disease and other gluten-related disorders in specific. He has published in many of the most prestigious journals in the world, as well as being on news media outlets, including New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and uh, National Public Radio. He recently co-authored a book called Gut Feelings, The Microbiome and Our Health with Susie Flaherty. It is excellent. I have been following the microbiome research for over a decade and a half, and this book concisely puts together all of the information, including epidemiology as well as anthropologic data as to why the world of our microbiome is so critical to our health, whether it is broken immune tolerance, development of autoimmune diseases, allergic diseases, celiac disease, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and so much more. I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. To give you an idea of what the book is actually about and also what we're going to talk about over the next hour, I'm going to read from an article called What Does the Microbiome Do? by Jerome Groupman. He writes, We live life with companions. Some, like parents, are present from our moment of birth. Others are met at school or work and become friends or spouses. These companions influence our behavior and emotions and so contribute to our physical and mental health. But as Alessio Fasano and Susie Flaherty show in Gut Feelings, we also live life with an invisible companion, the microbiome. The trillions of microbes, bacteria, fungi, viruses, and occasionally protozoan parasites that inhabit our gastrointestinal tract and reside in our upper airway and skin. The products of these microorganisms are thought to modify the workings of our genes, a process called epigenetics, and to directly affect the functioning of our vital organs. The microbiome is introduced to newborns through vaginal microbes, during labor, and then through a maternal feeding, and it can change in composition. It may aid our physical growth, emotional balance, and cognitive development, as well as the maturation of our immune defenses. It may also become injured or dysfunctional, contributing to the rise of inflammatory disorders like Crohn's disease or even specific speculated neuropsychiatric syndromes like depression and autism. Yet despite the possibility that the microbiome plays such a crucial part in human biology, we typically live in ignorance of its effects on our lives. Gut Feelings is a detailed and scientifically rigorous survey. He also writes, Fasano and Flaherty depict people as the product of two co-evolving genomes, but they rightly acknowledge that socioeconomic factors, including health disparities and poor access to health care, can negatively affect the microbiome. They warn against attributing too many illnesses to bad microbial health. We can't ignore poverty, discrimination, air pollution, lack of access to nutritious foods and other societal ills that influence diet and behavior, since these too can be major contributors to chronic diseases, like obesity and asthma, that disproportionately affect underprivileged communities. Switching to gut feelings itself, Dr. Fasano and Susie Flaherty write, regarding evolutionary biology explains bacterial adaptability, we note that, for example, the gut microbiome in people from industrialized countries like the United States seem to contain 15 to 30% fewer species when compared to the gut microbiome of people from non-Western nations. And aside from the obvious differences in lifestyle, there are other special and several theories that attempt to explain these differences. One proposal is the missing microbes hypothesis put forth by Martin Blaser in 2014. He theorized that losses of particular bacterial species of our ancestral microbiota due in large part to antibiotic treatments have altered the context in which immunological, metabolic, and cognitive development occur in early life, resulting in increased chronic inflammatory diseases. But on what premise is this theory of missing microbes based? Dr. Fasano's book looks at the answers to this question. Dr. Fasano goes on to state, when looking at how fast microbes replicate or reproduce themselves, he states, If human beings could reproduce every 20 minutes, it is certain that we would enjoy the same plasticity that characterizes bacteria and other microorganisms. But our biological clock requires nine months for reproduction. Random genetic mutation in a human, whether beneficial or detrimental, occurs too rarely to adapt to sudden changes in the environment. This, to me, is critical, because if we think about humans, Adaptation is the key to survival, and our genes are there to procreate, help us procreate, excuse me, and also survive. So, if our adaptation is very slow, it does make sense that maybe genetic mutation or genetic adaptation in the microbiome could play a huge part in our success and our survival, as well as that of the microbes within us. He also states in his book, When the human genome was initially reported to contain 25,000 genes, researchers were very surprised. Along with the assumed high number of genes, the concept of one gene as the cause of one disease was also discarded. Scientists were compelled to go deeper, to explain the role of genetics in disease development. How do we explain that one of the most rudimentary genetic beings, Homo sapiens, is complex and sophisticated enough to become the dominant species on our planet? This question has forced both basic and translational researchers back to their lab benches and clinical trials to try and make sense of what appeared to be inexplicable results. This led to the second major scientific accomplishment of recent times, the Human Microbiome Project. With a limited number of genes, humans enjoy a stable human genome. We inherit it from our parents and it can give us a genetic predisposition for a variety of biological and pathological traits. Conversely, the human microbiota expresses 100 times more genes than humans, is extremely plastic, and can change from individual to individual and within the same individual over time, all as the consequence of a variety of environmental factors that can shape its composition and function. Our human genome has co-evolved with the trillions of constantly changing microorganisms found in and on the human body. Given these facts, it is logical and at the same time quite tantalizing to hypothesize that we are actually the products of these two interacting holobiontic genomes. So I'm going to stop there. I think that gives you a flavor of what we're really looking at here. This emerging field that is incredibly powerful, something I've been studying very intimately for the past decade and a half. And now we have one of the preeminent experts in the world here to discuss how he fell upon this world of the microbiome through his research on cholera vaccines, all the way to the current understanding of what's going on with COVID and specific multi-inflammatory syndrome in kids as it relates to dysbiosis and intestinal permeability. So I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Alessio Fasano. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Alessio Fasano from up there in the Boston-Harvard area. I am so glad to have you here on Dr. and Children First Podcast. It is a great day to have you here, so welcome.
1: Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me on the the podcast.
0: It's my pleasure, my pleasure. So I thought I'd get started by sort of laying the little framework for where we're going to go. You know, if we eat a food particle, let's say gluten, you know, which comes from wheat and different... Uh, grains that we eat. It, it may appear to the body as a microbe or microbial debris piece, uh, which travels then into the intestine, triggering an immune response, whereby a peptide, zonulin, is released by the intestinal tissue, opening these things we call tight junctions between our gut cells via the disassembly of uh, little proteins called clodins and occludins. Uh, this interepithelial space is now permeable to larger molecules entering into potentially systemic circulation or in immune conserved spaces. The downstream effects of these events are, for me, some of the seminal ground zero pieces of information that we have now that can help explain, to some extent, difficult disorders like celiac disease, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and now multi-inflammatory syndrome in children with some of your research. We see many problems of pregnancy and childhood are related to some of these difficult reactions as well. So, Alessio, I've been following your career for over a decade. Can you take us back to the beginning of your work and the discovery of zonulin and and intestinal permeability? As for me, this is really the start point um, for much of my disease understanding. And I wanna bring this back full circle now to SARS-2 COVID and MIS. So take it from there. And and again, thank you for being here. Sure,
1: Chris. So (laughs) for those that are not really familiar with science, um, I, I just want to put out there a preamble to give you the rationale of what we're going to discuss on the fact that science is a constellation of failures with very few successes. And nobody cares about the failure. So you don't, write, you don't read this in, in you know, medical journals or any other places because people don't care. Right. Uh, and, and this cholera situation is indeed a story of failure the purpose was a totally different one i um, i moved to the united states for a fellowship for a two years you know fellowship and i was charged to develop a cholera vaccine cholera you know it's a bug that gives you know severe diarrhea and at that time still now but at that time it was really major impact in terms of morbidity and mortality particularly in kids Uh, doing this purge diarrhea caused by this severe toxin that makes these kids extremely sick. So this was at the beginning when we can manipulate the genes of microbes, cutting and pasting them out of there. So I was in charge to develop an attenuated live vaccine, taking the weapon out. So taking the cholera toxin gene out of there and everything worked beautifully. Uh, you know, in, in 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 the cell, in the animals, and so on and so forth. The bottom line: this vaccine candidate came, was, was ready for prime time for clinical trials in volunteers. And unfortunately, when we we gave this vaccine, um, yeah, it didn't give the the purging diarrhea of of you know uh, the fifteen uh, you know uh, gallons of. of of diarrhea, that's you know people that uh, got the real color, you know, w- experienced, but still was enough—a couple of gallons of, of watery diarrhea—that makes this vaccine not working. So the so bottom line: a couple of years, literally flushed through the toilets. You know, no point <laughs> in getting there um, right. of, of a science. So you know, I, in this kind of situation, either you just close the, the shop and move on and do something else, or you start to ask yourself why. Why this residual diarrhea? And, you know, eventually I, I discovered that, you know, beside this major weapon of color toxin, you know, the bug makes another toxin that actually rather than affecting the, the fluids transport and therefore, you know, pulling out water into the lumen uh, by changing this, you know, the electrolytes and fluid transport, loosen up the spacing between cells. Now, this was something that was discovered in the late 80s, and this was the time in which they are talk about ground zero. There was no agreement. Actually, the vast majority of the physiologists believed that the spacing between cells were cemented. So it right. was completely sealed. There was no dynamic you know, changes in there. So publishing a, a toxin that was loosening up the spacing between cells, what you mentioned before, the style junctions, it was unprecedented. So bottom line, the cholera, besides to cause you know, the classical diarrhea disease through the cell transport was also opening up the space in between cells. And the next obvious question was, how did you do that? What is the mechanism? So we started to dig into the mechanism, how you know, that this, this toxin disassembled this junction in between cells to learn that this was extremely complicated machinery. And I reasoned why we have this machinery just to be targeted by a toxin that makes us sick, makes no sense. It's right. more logic that this bug has been smart enough to study our physiology and mimicking something that we use for this purpose. And that's how we discovered zonaline almost 20 years ago now, a little bit more than 20 years ago. There is the counterpart of this toxin that does exactly that. So makes this space you know, um, in between cells dynamic. So you can open and close this this gate, so to speak, for purposes that we didn't understand at that time where well, we have a better idea right now. And then of course, to finish up, physiology, when you push to the limits, go to pathology. So if you use or abuse the system, what it's create, create a shortcut that makes molecule, as you mentioned, macromolecules to get on the other side of the fence, and being presented immune system instigating an immune response that's depending on your specific genetic background can come up with different clinical outcomes.
0: Right, right. So it, serendipity, we call that, you know, where you were doing some research for one end goal, the end goal didn't achieve what you thought it was, but it allowed you to peel the onion farther and come up with something that was even more interesting now in hindsight than, you know, although a vaccine would have been fantastic, I think to me, this is even more seminal to the future of understanding medicine, The zonulin story. So many things can elaborate zonulin, right? So my my understanding of the, of the literature right now is that toxins like Vibrio cholera toxin, but then also foodstuffs like gluten can potentially elaborate. What's the mechanism? I understand pattern recognition receptors are involved in this, so TOLIC receptors. So why, and then let's get into the why. Why does the body want to open these junctions uh, that, that allows action into a potentially more conserved space?
1: So the physiology, the reason why we want to do this now is pretty obvious. It's twofold. One is a way to learn about our surrounding, our environment. So, when tidally regulated, the space in between cells, you know, um, allows what we call technically antigen sampling. So, in other words, you figure out where is the room in your gut that is nothing else than the largest interface with, with this our surrounding, our environment. Learn about it, and immune system start to really understand and produce an immune memory of this encounter. And depending who you are, you play this game between the balance between tolerance, meaning stay put, don't do anything, or immune response in case that, you know, these molecules can be harmful to us. That's one of the key reasons why we want a dynamic space in between cells. The second reason that goes back to the instigator of the activation of this pathway is defense. So in other words, if you have An enemy that colonized the the small intestine that you don't want there. One thing that you can do is through the zoning pathway, open up the space and have a flux of water, first of all. So you dilute the toxin produced by this bug, but also trying to do a flushing effect. So, in other words, flushing out the the, the bad bug, the microorganism that is colonizing there so you can get rid of it. And besides bring fluid in there, you also bring, you know, chemicals like complement and, and immunoglobulins that attack these enemies, so to speak. Now, strangely enough, uh, gluten, and particularly some non-digestible component of gluten, are perceived indeed as element of microorganism activating exactly the same, you know, pathway. Bottom line, the two strongest stimuli. That we have found so far that, you know, released zonin in large amount are indeed gluten, and we know how now we have all the machinery clear, and dysbiosis. So in other words, the microbiome goes off balance that create the syndicate of the um, increased zonin, you know, release. And through this and through animal models, we realized that in the recipe of a variety of chronic inflammatory diseases, I would say any kind of disease in humankind given that we have an immune component, from cancer to food allergies to autoimmunity to neurodegeneration and so on and so forth, is always the results of mutually influential triangulation between gut permeability, microbiome, and immune system activation.
0: Right. And so historically, humans had lived in an environment that was challenging microbially. We have been for millennia spending our lives exposed to animal bacteria, uh, bacteria from the soil, bacteria from uh, different sources, viruses, everything. And it's only in the recent 100 years that we are much more cleanliness based as a society. So we're starting to see more and more of what we are calling this dysbiotic paradigm in the gut. I've had a couple uh, physicians on so far in the podcast, we discussed the maternal microbiome and the child's microbiome. And and so that balance point, that dysbiosis is is driving an inflammatory state in the gut. I know Patrice Connie has talked about this with the low level endotoxemia, but is, is the point of this that it's multifactorial that the zonulin is opening up or is it really truly one is necessary to the other. You have to have dysbiosis to also have intestinal permeability, or is it just the fact that in in most cases, intestinal dysbiosis exists, but you can also have intestinal permeability through, for example, celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or is it necessary and sufficient for both?
1: Well, the the, the, the question, Chris, is, you know, who is the chicken and who is the egg? It's very right. difficult to establish this. So, in other words, I can make the argument that increased gut permeability and celiac disease that we know exists uh, is the consequence and not the cause of the disease. Um, while you know, with the zoning pathway, we have many, many, many others now, have shown that this is a prerequisite to lose tolerance. So, in other words, the march from health to disease at the mucosal level goes like this: number one, everything is healthy. The tight junction are tightly regulated. To, uh, you have this antigen sampling, and you induce tolerance, so you stay well. Number two, you lose this tight control of the paracellular pathway. Why? Stress, excessive alcohol, you know, um, junk food, uh, you know, again, uh, excessive amount of gluten on a specific genetic background, dysbiosis, and I can go on and on and on. And right. that created the syndicate to increase, you know, paracellular permeability including through the zoning pathway. Now what you have that low level of on that endotoxemia that you you were mentioning before that has been covered by another podcast that now is challenging another non-self-antigen It's challenging the lamina propria immune system where we call the gut-associated lymphoid tissue that of course sees an enemy. And what you do when this is an enemy, you fight. And when you fight what's happening, collateral damage to this inflammation, and this inflammation is mediated by pro-inflammatory cytokines, like interferon GAN and, and, and TNF-alpha, that per se increase gut permeability. Now, in this vicious loop, antigen trafficking, inflammation, pro-inflammatory cytokines, even increase antigen trafficking until you break tolerance and you develop a problem. Which problem? Depends who you are genetically speaking. If you're right. pretty close for a TH1 immune response, you develop chronic inflammation, TH2, Allergy, Th17 and autoimmunity, uh, immune response, and so on and so forth. And the intricate interconnection that you were mentioning, again, has been proved now, I believe, in a very elegant way by us and many others by using animal models. So we have an animal model in which zoning is produced in excessive amount. So this animal congenitally produces a large amount of Okay. What happened to these animals? That If you look at these animals, they have the microbiota completely skewed toward a pro-inflammatory microbiome. So they lose protective microorganisms like, you know, Akkermansia. They increase the abundance of pro-inflammatory, you know, component in the microbiome like Rechinilla. So they are prone to do inflammation. And then you look at the immune system in these animals, they're also skewed to be ready to fight. So, in a hyper belligerent state of mind, because some of these immune cells that produce inflammation are upregulated and ready to fight. And if these animals are pushed to the limits by a stimulus of inflammation, they have, as an outcome, a much worse outcome than the cont- counterpart, of our wild type. So, in other words, their morbidity and mortality is much higher than wild top mice. All this to say, there is a mutual influential, you know, uh, a, 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 you know, cross talk, so to speak, between these three elements. That dictate if we stay healthy or if we develop disease. If you have dysbiosis, you increase gut permeability. But if you have increased gut permeability, that created dysbiosis. If you have increased gut permeability, the immune system become hyper Why? Because this passage of endotoxins the and, the and other non self antigen. But if you have an immune system that is hyperbelligerent, as I mentioned, you you produce pro inflammatory cytokine and increase your gut permeability. In other words, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. It it is a a mutually influential triangulation among these three elements that truly dictate how we start the march from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome and how the dysbiosis that epigenetically can make the immune system be even more belligerent because the gene that control the immune system becomes even more activated.
0: Right, and, and I think the, the, the mechanistic pathways for a long time were never understood, so it's considered the black swan. We didn't see it, therefore it can't exist. And I think a lot of your work has made that now front and center to understanding the why. I had a case, I remember after learning about your work quite a while ago and reading your 2013 paper on non-celiac gluten sensitivity, that a child come to see me, he was five years old and had chronically painful feet. And he went to an out, outlying institution in the Raleigh-Durham area and was told he had bone marrow edema syndrome. I had no idea what it was. So I looked at the mother, I said, do you mind if I Google this? And you know, I pulled up my computer and Googled bone marrow edema syndrome. And there it said radiographic evidence by MRI, swelling of the bone marrow, unknown etiology story there. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, this smells like gluten. I said, I have no idea why nothing else makes sense. There was no obvious outside rash or anything else to explain. So we did a 30-day diagnostic trial off of gluten. He got better, re-challenged him, feet hurt again, end of story from a clinical perspective. And so I was sitting there at that point without the full mechanistic understanding of the why, clearly it wasn't celiac. We tested him for that, but he had the response rate. So Let's take it from there, because I know you've done a lot of work specifically around gluten and, and non-celiac versus celiac. So when, when a human consumes the the gluten molecule, or let's just take wheat, break it down from the two different aspects, the, it, whether it heads to the celiac pathway from HLA-DQ2-DQ8 versus the non-celiac and the innate immune system.
1: So actually there are common pathways to all of us. And then there is a divergence between those that have no problem with gluten and those that develop, develop problem with gluten. And there is a further divergence there, celiac versus non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So when we eat something with gluten in it, we all digest that to the point in which we cannot digest completely to the single elements, the amino acids that we can do with any other food, you know, protein. We have undigested fragments that they are capable to communicate with us doing specific things. Pertinent to the discussion today, a couple of these undigested fragments, they are able to interact with a specific receptor, that is a chemokine receptor, is called CXCR3, that recognize this fragment as component of the microorganism, as I've mentioned before, and as such will induce a T um, a 88 a, 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 M-I-D-88-dependent release zone line. Now, zone is released, binds to its own receptor. There is a, it's called a proteinase-activated receptor that transactivates another receptor, it's EGFR, and this leads to changes of this composition and function of this protein make the di-junctions, creating phosphorylation, some of these elements that now are detached to each other, and this open up the space. Now again, um, this happened to all of us. Once you open this space, as a consequence, stuff in the lumen, including this undigested gluten fragment, will come into the lamina propria. And as I was mentioned before, there the immune system takes over because sees the enemy and does something about it. What happened to us the majority of people that actually tolerate gluten? That the immune system clean up the mess. We don't even know that with this passage we stay healthy. That's the end of the story and that's and that's called tolerance and it's tolerance because the right. immune system again has been doing this antigen sampling of gluten before and is capable to handle that and genetically right. you are not paying consequences so right the vast majority of people even if you increase gut permeability even if you don't digest completely gluten will not have any clinical consequence now there is a subgroup of individuals in which this inflammation activates, a cha- this, this encounter with the immune system activates a chain of events that leads to the activation of what we call the innate immune system. So the, the first comer when we face an enemy. And with that, because again, you engage the innate immune system that activates a specific pathway, you develop inflammation. If you stop there... So in other words, you develop inflammation due to the engagement of the innate immune system, and nothing else. You will develop symptoms related to non-celiac gluten sensitivity. These people, they have no damage to the intestine. They have inflammation in the lamina propria, that translates in clinical outcome that unfortunately is not distinguishable from celiac disease. Same symptoms, so on a clinical ground you cannot distinguish, but stops there. If on the other hand, beside the innate immune system that you need to activate anyhow, the, as the next step, now you have the release of this enzyme that is in cells that are damaged, it's called tissue transglutaminase, that will deamidate gluten. And you have the HLA to present gluten to T cells, the HLA-DQ2, DQ8. So now you have the gluten that comes through that induce an innate immune response that's common to gluten, notes your gluten sensitivity. But now you got the next step. TTG would deamidate this, will bind to the HLA DQ2, the HLA DQ2 or DQ8 on antigen presented cells. This is presented deamidated to the T cells, and these T cells will start the chain of events that leads to the celiac is the pathology, autoimmune insult that's typical of the autoimmune process of celiac disease. So beside the innate immune response, you need to have also the adaptive immune response in order to develop celiac disease, while with non-celiac gluten sensitivity, you do not.
0: And I think this is going to become critical when we talk about your MIS research, because it is clear that activating zonulin, intestinal permeability, if it's happening in most of us or all of us at any one point in time, that's not sufficient to then go on to have secondary disease. You have to have this activation of the innate immune response for the non-celiac state. And then you have the secondary part where you have this HLA, which is human leukocyte antigen, which is basically a white blood cell way to present this gluten to the immune system to say, hey, you're a bad player. I'm going to now develop antibodies against you and I'm going to kill you as if you are a bacterium or a virus and I'm gonna kill you every time you eat it. Therefore, that patient presents sick because when they consume the gluten or the food, the body thinks it's being attacked by a pathogen, attacks it with the immune system, it keeps to attack them and makes them sick and they present with brain fog, body aches, joint aches, rashes, all of the above. Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, actually, in, in, in a recent book that uh, Susie and I wrote, uh, that uh, it's, it's, it's mostly uh, you know focused on, on gut microbiome. But because of gut microbiome, we're taking this a uh, holistic approach with all that affects the gut microbiome, it's called gut feelings. Um, there are five pillars. So the, to have the perfect storm to develop any disease of humankind, there are five pillars, three of which we discussed already. Gut permeability. This biosis, so the microbiome that goes off the balance, and an immune system become belligerent. Right. Then you need a genetic predisposition So that you have to be genetically predisposed to develop Alzheimer or type one diabetes or celiac disease, and the exposure to an environmental trigger. So, if you have one of the five, let's say increased gut permeability because you eat gluten, but you miss the other four, you don't develop any problem. But even if you have, you know. All five it, it, the march to break tolerance and develop the problem can take quite a long time because some epigenetic switch of the genes that you have that put you at risk needs to put them in, in motion. So, in other words, one thing is to have the genetic predisposition, the other one is if this gene is really expressed in a way that makes you sick. All right. this to say, you know, lifestyle is instrumental to decide how we play our genetic cards. And the classical example, again, is celiac disease. Once upon a time, we believe, b- based on these five pillars, at least at that time we were three, because we didn't know about the microbiome and gut permeability, but you know, we thought if you're a genetic predisposed, so you have the genes and you eat gluten, this is necessary sufficient to develop the problem. Then we learn over the years that if you follow people you know, at risk, some people break tolerance indeed soon after they introduce gluten in the diet. Some people they for 40 years they can eat gluten. It is undisputable the trigger of the autoimmune process serious disease without gut sick. And then all of a sudden they do. How do you explain that? Epigenetics. So bottom mm-hmm. line, the genes have been always there, but they were not put in motion. And then something happened: infection, a trip, stressors, a surgery, stressors. You know, whatever, they change the microbiome. In its composition and function, and that epigenetically changed the plan of the genes that control the genetic, I mean, the controlled immune response to gluten. And now you switch from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome.
0: Right. And that's the, that's the critical piece there that was coming next. And you just talked about it, which is this epigenetic piece, the, the lifestyle factors that are secondarily sitting out there, laying the milieu for the immune system to be happy or unhappy, tolerant or intolerant. And then the, the cascade of events carries itself on. So we've touched on now, celiac disease is a prototypical autoimmune reaction. So the body is reacting to self. In this case, it's reacting to our, our tissue that looks like tissue the, related to the gluten, tissue transglutaminase, the anti antibodies, you start to have now secondary diseases. Autoimmunity seems to be part and parcel with leaky gut or intestinal permeability. So it, again, sufficient and necessary, right? You have to have this leaky gut in order to then have these inflammatory reactions that then start showing our self-tissue to the immune system, right? These damage associated molecular patterns. So I was reading a paper and I don't know if you saw this paper. I know you've done a fair amount of work in autism over the years, but in molecular psychiatry in January, there was an autoimmune analysis of maternal autoantibodies. And they found that 18% of the circulating maternal autoantibodies were attacking parts of the child's brain. So positing again, that we need to be far upstream in our understanding of the lifestyle mitigation factors to prevent the risk of these epigenetic shifts or these these, uh, intestinal permeability events that then leads to autoimmune cascade of events signaling inside the mom's body that then is now attacking the newborn, right? So would it make sense to you being the expert in this space that what we should be telling mothers is that they should be eating a you know a whole foods, minimally processed diet, maybe even low in gluten, depending on what their symptom complex is. If they have no symptoms at all and are perfectly healthy, maybe not, but if they share any sign of brain fog, uh, body irritation, rashes, that maybe a gluten-free diet during pregnancy would make sense. And, and I know I'm shooting from the hip here, just based on the mechanistic understandings.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, uh, gluten is one of the many factors that we discussed before that can right. increase gut permeability. And, and again, um, you know, uh, I, I think that beside gluten and healthy lifestyle, it will be right. highly recommended, definitely to pregnant women, but to all of us. You know, if you look in the literature, you ask yourself, what kind of disease has been linked to increased zonulin production and therefore as a biomarker gut permeability, okay? And, and therefore it's a fair target to try to mitigate my risk to developing a problem. The list is humongous. There are autoimmune diseases, there are infections, there are allergic diseases, there is cancer, aging. Aging is a process of inflammation. That's the reason why it's called inflammation. And it's been shown that you know if you have you know, Drosophila, the fruit fly, for example, the predictor when the Drosophila dies is not the chronological age of the Drosophila, but one loses the barrier function of the gut. And when they fix that, by genetically manipulating the genes that control the drosophila gut permeability, double the life expectancy of the animal. Mm. Ultra centenarian, they are healthy. They have very low zoning level compared to relatively young folks that have cardiovascular problems. There is much higher. You know, again, you know, some events are, equal for all of us. So it really depends very little on the genetic, if we age or not. The genetic though, dictate how we age graciously or, you know, we crash. And if we would develop comorbidity with aging, there are people that are in the nineties and they're independent and they can go out for their life, no problem. And other people that are 60 are on a wheelchair and they have, you know, problem, and again uh, th- there are evidence you know in the literature that if you're ultra centenarian and you're relatively healthy your level of zonulin is extremely low compared to you know people in their 40s with cardiovascular accident with the level is extremely high uh, a, a, you know this is just an example that you know the the process of inflammation and again, we all age. So there are people that age, you know, graciously because they have the system that, again, is keeping check the antigen trafficking and the endotoxin trafficking, and therefore inflammation happen very gradually. And people that simply crashed because the system is so upregulated that, you know, at 60s, you are in a wheelchair and you are not capable to function. So all this to say that, again, um, uh, the, the the you know while the, you know the 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 uh, antigen trafficking and gut permeability was voodoo science in the past, now there is you know foundational blocks that the, the, the you know the genetic approach showing that genes involved in 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 gut, uh, gut permeability are involved in, uh, in a variety of chronic inflammatory diseases, a proteomic approach that shows the biomarker permeability are involved in a variety of story. The Zolin situation that, again, uh, you know, linked a variety of chronic inflammatory diseases with the Zolin pathway. I, I, all evidence that, you know, this is not a cosmetic, is not an epiphenomenon, but antigen trafficking with that triangulation we were talking about before is instrumental. And why I develop type 1 diabetes and you develop Celiac disease somebody else develop Alzheimer's, depending on our genetic makeup.
0: Right. So let's shift gears now, because I want to get into your most recent paper in Journal Clinical Investigations uh, last January. So if we think about just children, the, the, the diseases are moving closer and closer to the beginning of life. We used to not see all of these autoimmune diseases in young kids. Type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes. And now all these diseases are happening at younger and younger ages, which when I talk to different you know, experts around the microbiome, it's clear the microbiome of mom is shifting, which is then affecting the child's microbiome. And the antecedent upstream risks are now moving closer and closer to birth. I mean, I started practice in 1999, and we very rarely saw a child with cow milk protein intolerance, right? And now it is seems to be every fourth child has some form of inability to tolerate either maternal breast milk or, or child's breast milk. So something's shifted big time in the dysbiosis land of the of the infant and the child. So let's go to your most recent paper. SARS-2 comes on the scene, starts to disrupt life around the world. And oh, by the way, a subset of these children develop multi-inflammatory syndrome, which very much appears to look like Kawasaki's with inflammation and, and high fevers and trouble. And some kids are dying. So your lab decides to follow some of the similar ideology of the intestinal dysbiosis and leaky gut could be involved. Take it from there with your 100 children's study. What did you find?
1: So <clears throat> the, 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 the beginning of the pandemic uh, made a, as a statement that this was an adult elderly disease and kids were spared. That of course for us made no sense because if there is one population subjected to viral infections, these are kids. So right. we knew from the very beginning that you know kids will eventually be exposed and be infected and possibly transmit and then turn to be correct, you know, the SARS-CoV-2. But why clinically they were kind of silent at the beginning was not clear. And now pretty much is obvious what's going on. Kids like anybody else will have the SARS-CoV-2, you know, port of entry as the upper highways. Contrary to the adults, this upper airways first niche will not translate in the lower airways, therefore the lung and you go in the respirator, you know, the that secure unit, and so on and so forth. But find as a biological niche, the, the GI tract. That's where the, the, the virus sits for weeks, sometimes for months. And the vast majority of kids will have this passage there clinically completely silent. So they don't know what's going on. And a few of them this translates in this very severe life-threatening, you know, cytokine storm disease, that is this MIS-C, that is the multi-organ inflammatory syndrome in children. There is also a counterpart in adults. And then there's long COVID, it's totally it another discussion. Right. But we didn't know how these kids develop this cytokine storm, since we look left and right, up and down, and we cannot find the SARS-CoV-2 in the bloodstream, nothing. Then, the, through the collaboration, some other folks here uh, on campus, the Harvard Medical School at Brigham, and colleagues across the you know the country. So in in California, and by the way, this is the beauty when something like this happen, the humility to just try to help by networking all together, drop what we're doing, and trying to figure out what's going on. And that's been a rewarding experience with you know these colleagues from all over the country coming to rescue, so to speak. What we found is the following. This SARS-CoV-2 that got in the GI tract, find this biological niche there, eventually create dysbiosis, that in turn increase the zone release, that eventually will lead to some key components of the SARS-CoV-2, particularly the spike protein to get in the bloodstream. Now, we, and now confirmed by others, found out that this this spike is a super antigen. In other words, something that is capable to activate the cytokine storm and autoimmune processes through specific interaction with T cell receptor. And if you have a mutation of this T cell receptor, that brings the expansion of these T cells that will lead to the cytokine storm. If that was indeed the right hypothesis that, by the way, was it was was you know supported by our finding or two, three years ago of Kawasaki being zoning mediated. And you know, we we had an animal model, we see this in kids and so on and so forth. Well, we may have a solution. Meaning if we stop the antigen trafficking using a zoning blocker that is already in clinical trials for other conditions like serious disease, we may rescue these kids. And sure enough, we went to the FDA, we asked for compassionate use of lorazidide, the zone inhibitor. We treat the first kid they went well, and then the second and third until we got five kids treated. And the results were so um, promising that the Food and Drug Administration allowed us to go for a double blind phase two clinical trial now ongoing, led by my colleague uh, um, pulmonologist, pulmonologist, Dr. Lyle Yonker, that is running this clinical trial. So, you know, starting from our discussion, a failure of vaccine leads to rescue kids with the most severe, you know, outcome of SARS-CoV-2. If you told me, you know, at that time that this will be the outcome of this, you know, line of research, I would say you must be out of your mind.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful discovery. I I can't tell you when I read that paper. I think I've read a thousand papers in the last two years on SARS-CoV-2. And when your paper came across, number one, I saw your name. Immediately, I was going to read it. Number two, I read the mechanisms and saw the whole pathway. And it's just incredible how serendipity plays out. Looking for a vaccine, end up finding a drug that will block the activity of the zonulin that is causing the dysfunction that's killing children. It's a story you can't make up. It is absolutely beautiful. So the question I have is, This was the is is there an antecedent dysbiosis that's necessary, or is it truly the SARS CoV 2 that's driving a change in the phenotype of the bugs that they're in there, driving the ability of the zonulin to be released? Or or is it that these kids were actually because, again, when I looked at the MISC data just epidemiologically, these kids all had risk because of obesity or asthma or something else, so they. To me, it sounds like they probably had dysbiosis already, and this just pushed it. Or what's the story there?
1: Yeah, actually, the two things are not mutually exclusive, and unfortunately, we don't have prospective, you know, data to make the point that you know because we surveil the microbiome of these kids before the event, before MIS-C, to show there was dysbiosis. It's very right. considerable because, right. you, as you said, there are pre preconditions. And again, you also alluded to, you know, what once upon a time was called the hygienic hypothesis. And this is also the consequence of lifestyle that made us too good, too clean for our own goods. And again, sometimes we miss the the issue until the very recent past. So the last second of the two million years of human evolution, we lived a totally different lifestyle. And we didn't give up ourselves enough time to adapt these abrupt changes that led us to this increased susceptibility to chronic inflammatory diseases. Yes, we do not die fast of infectious diseases anymore until God or nature, whatever you want to call it, bring back situations like this zoonosis. But you know, we, we die very slowly chronic inflammatory diseases. I don't know which one is the worst, but you know, definitely we don't lose the same number of kids and, and folks for infectious disease like in developing countries, but we lose a much larger proportion of the population in terms of morbidity and mortality, succumbing so at this changing of the microbiome that makes us more susceptible to the situation like MESI.
0: Right. And to your point, the myriad of causes of the disruption of the dis- bio- disruption of the biome is is incredibly profound and large. And I've talked about it at length on this podcast and in the newsletter. So we won't get into that today so much as if you were to say, Dr. Alessio Fasano's top five things or whatever you would give it a number, what would you say are the five things that you would tell pre-pregnant mothers to do, children to do, you're a pediatric gastroenterologist. So, you know, food, avoidance of chemicals, go through sort of a Alessio Fasano's list of how to be healthy in this world. And I know your book has a lot of this as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, short by recommending to go back in the caveman's lifestyle. <laughs> that would be undoable. You know. Um, but you know, the, the the obvious is first and foremost, you know, eat well. Because you know, nutrition by far is the most impactful way that you epigenetically can control through the, through the microbiome changes. You know your genes, and and eventually keep yourself healthy or move toward an inflammatory process. So, what do you mean for it? Well, again, what we ate for two million years: a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, a lot of nuts, tubers. You know, all of the what they are there. You pick at them. So the 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 the, the, the gatherers part of, of nutrition has been always abundant. Hunting, technically complicated. Yeah, meats you can have it, but once in a while because it was very hard to get you know animals and these animals were lean meats, eating natural stuff. So in other words, these are not animals that are pumped up with hormones or you know antibiotics to grow fast so that you reach the level of weight to to slaughter that you know in a profitable way. Um, so I, you know, mild zero in season, organic. Um, that makes a lot of sense, uh, you know. If you have a little bit of land and you want to entertain yourself, to you know, take care of your own produce, will be ideal. But if you don't have the time, there is ample possibility to choose wisely what you put in your mouth, you know. And again, um, you know, it took two million years to build such a huge, sophisticated car, this Ferrari. You don't want water in the tank. You want the the super octane, you know, gasoline that been engineered to be fueling this car and, yeah. and again that's the number one stress i mean i know that it's very difficult particularly nowadays to say control your stress easy to say very complicated to do but you know no matter what praying meditation yoga whatever uh, take it easy you know take it easy if the lesson that i learned through this pandemic so being the first responder in the hospital you know, you don't make plans three years from now because events like this can change completely the trajectory. So I think that, you know, you need to, you know, seize the day and and make the best out of it and and good be good to yourself and the others because that will help tremendously your immune system to work in the best way and in your favor. Have a good sleep IG. You know, I, I can't believe that, you know, again, we accept as a society to have, a TV in our bedroom, or three, you know, uh, you know, cell phones on our nightstands, in which there are messages coming every three seconds. This is not healthy. We need a good period of sleep for, you know, recharge the battery, pruning, you know, our synapses, but at the same time to give the immune system the time to regroup, so to speak. During that period, that is instrumental, and you know, again. Um, Drink good wine, Italian wine, (laughs) because you know that will work. So, anyhow, all this to say, you know, don't take yourself too seriously because you know life is way too short to drink bad
0: wine. So,
1: um, but but those are my my recipe recommendations.
0: I love it. I love it. I could tell you my my days visiting Italy, as we had talked about offline beforehand, are all filled with those visual experiences of the beautiful Italian countryside where people are not taking themselves too seriously. They are loving life, they're eating good food, drinking good wine, getting the fruit from their yard. And just, there's something to be said about that. I love living in this country, but every chance I get to go back to Italy and visit, I, I take it, it is a breath of fresh air. And I think they they have, your culture has lived that way. And I know it's changing over there as it is here. But those words of wisdom are, are important. And I think every parent listening to this, every clinician listening to this, we need to be teaching our, our, our younglings, our children and our, our, our next generation to, to espouse that kind of a lifestyle instead of the modern cultural lifestyle because I think our modern culture is hurting us. And, and yeah, no, so-
1: You know, again, you know, I know that there are a lot of fashionable diets out there and the Mediterranean diet is one of them, but the Mediterranean diet it really s- step up from the rest of the crowd, so to speak, because it's not yeah. a diet, it's a lifestyle. Right. Right. It's really the diet and the easygoing, the way that you described, again, yes, most of the people they are losing this in, in in Italy as well. But if you go where I'm from, where the Mediterranean diet was described the first time, they are still ultra centenarian that live that way. Yeah. You know, they keep walking because they have physical exercise, they eat well and they take it easy. And, and I believe there is no excuse, particularly the lesson learned through this pandemic to say, I don't have the time. I don't have the time to do food shopping. I don't have the time to cook. Because we were locked, we regained the, the joy, of cooking, at least I heard from a lot of, of friends. And it's very relaxing. And you know what you're doing in terms of putting, you know, the right stuff in your mouth. I, I believe that, again, living the fast lane of life it's not to our best interests. Uh, we, we can we can have stuff done even if we, we slow down a little bit as we were imposed by the pandemic. So if I want to leave enough, a final word of wisdom, you know, if we thought that we are indispensable to be physically one point or doing a certain activity, guess what? We are not, and we right. can have backup solutions like now, you and I having this conversation on a Zoom meeting, or, you know, sometimes people, they can really uh, have the chance to take a piece of paper and a pen and write, yes, write, that's something that we don't do anymore, to send a letter. I mean, you know, these are all activities that we believe they are obsolete because they are too much time wasting. They are not. They are really not. It's part of our, you know,
0: heritage that will keep us healthy. I agree with you. Stay in the slow lane unless you're riding in a Ferrari to win Le Mans 24 hours. That's it. Everything else should be nice and relaxed. So (laughs) I love it. Dr. Fasano, I want to be cognizant of your hour. I thank you so, so much, Alessio, for this beautiful tour through your phenomenal career of research. I'm going to spend some time afterwards actually going through a little bit more for folks, but your time is, is incredibly valuable and I am so grateful for your research, your time and your love of this science. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for me
1: on on the podcast. And and as a final note, I just want to make everybody that like everywhere else, this is a fruit of a group of very dedicated individuals. I'm just the speaker person for
0: this group. Hi, well, I thank you for all of your hard work and being a speaker for this group and, and just being the onion peeler that you are, because all the onions that you keep peeling give us data to keep looking. So thank you again. And I hope you have a great day. You too now. Thanks. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the totality of that conversation. Dr. Fasano is one of the preeminent speakers, researchers in this space, and I feel very privileged to have had the time to spend with him to go over this, as well as to read his book and follow his uh, literature in the scientific publications to date. I want to share a little more from his book. Chapter 18 is called Maintaining a Resilient Microbiome Through Old Age. I think this is a critical chapter because if we understand aging or inflammaging, to control that process is to control how long we live and how well we live for that length of time. Because I certainly don't want to live for a long period of time, if that means being hooked up to tubes, drugs, hospitals, doctor visits, all of that stuff. I would prefer to live as long as I can, as healthy as I can, and then die. Like that, that sounds to me to be a beautiful story. And inflammation is a key to that. And the microbiome is one key of inflammation. So, you know, he puts in his book at the end here, A big discussion on the biology of aging, which we talked about briefly in this podcast. You know, aging is a syndrome of changes, as he writes, that are deleterious, progressive, universal, and to date irreversible. Between 1997 and 2019, PubMed published 369,000 articles on senescence and aging. Most of them were published in the last five years, and more than 2,000 articles were focused on the role of the microbiome in aging. Based on this body of work, we now have a much better understanding of the biological basis of aging process. He goes on to state this, and he writes a lot about this at the end, which is very important. And if you read nothing else, read chapter 18 in this book, although I highly encourage you to read the whole book. What does aging do? Aging damages occur on our molecules, DNA proteins, fats, to cells, and to organs with the accumulation of changes in each person over time. Aging in humans refers to a multidimensional process of physical, psychological, and social change. This complex process of biological aging is a result of genetic and to a greater extent environmental factors in time itself, occurring heterogeneously across multiple cells and tissues. As the rate of aging is not the same in all humans, biological age does not always correspond with chronological age. And you know I've talked about this in many of the podcasts and many of the newsletters to date. We are heavily influenced by our environment. Our genetics are important, but the environment is even more important, and specifically lifestyle, stress, food. You know, all of the parts of the, the four-legged stool that, that lead to disease or, or abnormal functioning of the human frame. You know, normal aging, he writes in his book, normal aging implies sensory changes like visual acuity, hearing loss, and dizziness, right? Muscle weakening, reduced agility and mobility and changes in fat. At the same time, there's a functional reduction of several systems, including the kidneys, respiratory system, and GI tract, while the body increasingly comes to certain diseases that we know of as hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and and more. And, and you know, from the perspective of COVID, those diseases that, COVID hijacked and caused people to die earlier. So I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but I just want to go through what he calls his main, you know, places he goes to 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 look at where the damage is occurring. He says, number one, free radical theory, oxidative stress. Anything that causes oxidative stress in the body will increase our risk of DNA damage and problems, right? Cellular senescence and apoptosis theory he talks about, which is, you know, which cells are going uh, into a uh, old age phase faster than they should and or dying out completely. You know, he talks about the immune system theory is number three. You know, how is the immune system involved in this through uh, abnormal tolerance and the declining ability to handle foreign and self proteins, specifically for autoimmunity. He talks about number four, the inflammation theory. How is aging related to just pro-inflammatory effects of chemicals like NF-kappa B? He talks about number five, the intestinal permeability theory, which he laid out in this book, right? So if we talk about all these things, you know, if it, you go through chapter 18, he discusses each one of those in small detail, right? Dysbiosis and aging, what's happening in the human body, diet and the aging microbiome. How does diet play into this, which I think is huge. And I know he said that he thinks it's huge. And I think the next piece of this pie is going to really be, you know, the, the understanding that, that stress, mental stress, excess physical stress, sleep deprivation stress, all of these stressors not only affect the the human hormone physiology, the cellular physiology, but it also affects our microbiome. This this organism within us that is 1 trillion bacteria, uh, I mean multi-trillions of bacteria, excuse me, and then the viruses and the parasites and everything else is they are all affected by our stressors. Whatever those environmental stressors are, and they are affected epigenetically. So, for us, this is a huge, huge, huge issue. And we need to be very clear that if we don't get ahead of this and plan for aging and plan for our senility, we will accelerate this process through the American lifestyle system and end up in worse shape. So, with that, I'm going to leave you. I know this was a lot, but I think this is critical to future discussions that we're going to have over time. And Dr. Vasano is one of the researchers that I encourage all of you to follow and read his book, Gut Feelings. Uh, it's excellent. You know, his work and coupled to Susie Flaherty's work is just something that, you know, it's worth your time. That's it. Just simple stated, read it, do the work, prepare for your future and specifically for your children's future. So With that, I'm going to leave you, and I hope you're all having a fabulous day wherever you find yourself. Much love to you all, and with that, I'm going to sign off. Remember to always hug those kids. Finally, for the disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional, and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue, and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.